Hey guys, welcome back to the Unknown Friends podcast today. This is episode 38 of season 2. Right now we're in the middle of a series of book reviews on The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And this week we'll be discussing The Horse and His Boy, which is book 5 out of the 7. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you should ever want to learn more about me and the plays I write, you can just check out my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Also, if you haven't yet, be sure to listen to the previous discussions in this series of Narnia episodes. So today, we are moving right along into the next book in the series, titled The Horse and His Boy. Like I mentioned last week, Lewis actually wrote The Horse and His Boy before he wrote The Silver Chair, but they were published in reverse order, which I think works well. Um, so The Horse and His Boy was published in 1954. Also, despite its place as the fifth book in the series, the events of The Horse and His Boy technically take place within the time frame of the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which of course ends with the Pevensey siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, reigning for several years in the Kingdom of Narnia after the defeat of the White Witch. And then once they've grown up and have been kings and queens in Narnia for a while, they find themselves stumbling back through the wardrobe into England as children again. And the timeline of our world resumes for them where they left off. Well, The Horse and His Boy is about people in the world of Narnia during the reign of the Pevensey siblings. So The Horse and His Boy is the only book out of the Seven Chronicles that is not about children from our world traveling into Narnia. Yes, the Pevenseys are characters in the book, but they're actually side characters. And our hero is a boy from the Narnian world, not from Earth. So The Horse and His Boy is... Um, unique among all the chronicles in that regard. And something else about The Horse and His Boy makes it, I think, very special. Um, it's so hard to put into words. It's impossible to choose a favorite chronicle of Narnia, for me anyway. But the few times that I have been asked what my favorite book is in the series although I've never really been able to decide, it is true that The Horse and His Boy is usually the first of the seven books that comes to mind when I'm faced with this question. Years ago, when I was, I think, 10 or 12, the kids in my church, we performed The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a Christmas play, which was interesting. A lot of fun, but extremely low budget. But I distinctly remember all of us kids talking about which of the Narnia books we should perform next, which we never did, but I remember that The Horse and His Boy was definitely our top choice. There is just something endearing about the story, and I think we all thought it was fun and exciting, and it's just a beautiful book thematically. And even as a child, there were moments in the story that impressed me and shaped me in important ways. So, of course, there's not one book among the seven chronicles that I don't love dearly, but I have to say I am 
extraordinarily fond of The Horse and His Boy, and I hope I can share some of the reasons why in today's episode. So our hero in this story is a boy named Shasta, and he lives in a little fishing community far to the south of the land of Narnia. So a quick um, lesson on the geography of the Narnian world. Narnia itself, the kingdom ruled at this time by Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, is bordered on the south by a small kingdom called Arkenland, which is also a good place on very friendly terms with Narnia. But then south of Arkenland is a range of mountains and then a desert, which marks the beginning of the southern kingdom of Kalormen, which is not a very good place and not on friendly terms with Narnia. It is a land of men, of humans, I mean, as opposed to Narnia, which is mostly inhabited by talking animals, dwarves, centaurs, and all those other mythical creatures. And the people of Kalorman have very different values and beliefs than the Narnians do. Kalormans don't believe in Aslan at all. Um, they worship their own god called Tash. And in general, they are a culture driven by ambition and competition rather than the values of justice and peace and truth that govern both Narnia and Arkenland. So the boy Shasta has grown up in the south, in Kalorman, and he does not have a very good life. He was raised by a fisherman named Arshish, but Arshish is not his father, and Shasta has no idea who his real parents are or were. He is essentially Arshish's slave. Until, one day, a Kalormine lord arrives, a Tarkhan as they say, Kalormine lords and ladies are given the title uh, Tarkhan or Tarkina. So a Tarkhan passes through Shasta's neighborhood on his war horse, and while the Tarkhan and Arshish the fisherman are bartering with each other, Shasta discovers that the stranger's horse is actually, unbeknownst to anyone, including his owner, a talking horse. The horse's name is Bree, and he tells Shasta that he is a Narnian by birth, but as a young foal was captured and sold into slavery in Kalorman, and he's kept it a secret all these years that he is truly a talking beast. And Bree also says that Shasta looks Narnian, not Kalormine, and since Shasta has no love for Arshish, he agrees to escape with Bree from their slave masters and try to get to the land of Narnia and find freedom there. So in the night, Bree and Shasta make their escape together and head north. So they travel through Kalorman for many weeks, and Shasta and his horse, or more properly, the horse and his boy, become pretty good friends over the course of that time, although Bree, the horse, is most definitely the leader of the escape. And then one night, as they're traveling through the dark, they have a strange adventure, which ultimately brings them together with another horse and rider, also heading north, hoping to get to the free land of Narnia. And to Bree and Shasta's surprise, this other horse is also a talking horse originally from Narnia, and she's a mare named Huynh. 
Her writer, on the other hand, is not Narnian, but is a Kalormian girl named Erevis, the daughter of a great lord, or Tarkhan. But even though Erevis has not been a slave like the other three, she has felt somewhat enslaved, you could say, in her father's house, because her father has planned to make her marry an old, ugly, rich, Kalormian Tarkhan, and Erevis is quite determined not to marry this man. So she ran away from home with her horse, Huynh, and it seems an extraordinary coincidence, but a fortunate one, that Huynh and Erevis encounter Bree and Shasta, as all four of them are making their escape northward. So the four decide to join forces and travel to Narnia all together. Now, Erevis has a lot of excellent character qualities, but it is worth noting that because of her upbringing in Kalorman, as the daughter of a great Tarkhan, she does struggle a bit treating Shasta with much respect. He was a fisherman's slave. He has not got any education. He's a nobody. And Erevis tends to treat him with some disdain because of this. So the journey north takes on a different flavor for Shasta after he and Bree are joined by Erevis and Huynh. Shasta feels Erevis's superiority and scorn, and he's constantly reminded of his own lowliness in contrast to her loftiness. But over, over the course of time, of course, uh, once she gets to know him a little better and they experience some adventures together, that distance between them somewhat lessens. They both start to appreciate one another more for who each one is as a person and for their unique strengths and weaknesses. But there's always that kind of tension in the background between Erevis's high status and Shasta's low status. So, all that said, the four travelers continue north together through Kalorman, and they do all gradually become better friends over the course of their journey, even though there is still a little bit of friction between some of them sometimes. But where things really start to intensify is when the four friends have to make their way through Tashban, which is the capital city of Kalorman, located just south of the great desert that separates Kalorman from Arkenland in the north. Erevis is worried that someone may recognize her in Tashban, and so the travelers have to disguise themselves and be very watchful as they make their way through the city. But despite their best precautions, things go wrong quickly. Shasta gets separated from the other three and mistaken for the Prince of Arkenland, who it turns out is visiting Tashban with a group of royal Narnians, including King Edmund and Queen Susan. So Shasta finds himself among these Narnians and overhears some scary things about the treacherous Kalormian rulers who invited King Edmund and Queen Susan to visit. And although Shasta likes these Narnian people who seem so friendly and generous and kind, even so, he is 
terrified that they'll find out he's not who they think he is, and maybe they'll kill him or turn him over to Kalormian officials. So as soon as he finds a chance to escape from the company of Narnians, he does. But then he faces the challenge of finding his three friends and rejoining them, and that proves to be not as easy as he had hoped. And meanwhile... Erebus and the horses have been having their own adventure and overhearing some other interesting and frightening information. And all in all, what all four friends experience makes all of them want more than ever to escape the land of Kalorman and find freedom in Narnia as soon as possible. But once they do finally find each other again, they've got to make it across the desert and the mountains before they can reach Narnia. And on top of that, they've learned in Tashban that Narnia itself and its neighbor Arkenland are in some danger from the power-hungry Kalormian leaders. And if our heroes hope to warn the free northern kingdoms of the impending danger, they're going to have to travel secretly and quickly in order to reach Arkenland in time. So that is what's at stake in The Horse and His Boy, and that's how the story progresses for the first two-thirds or so of the book. And of course, the culmination of the storyline, if you don't already know it, I will leave for you to discover for yourself when you read the book. So for the remainder of this episode, let's just touch on a couple of the key themes of the story. I want to take a stab at communicating a few of the ideas, at least, that helped form my way of thinking about life from a young age. So one brief thing I want to mention first. There's a line from The Horse and His Boy that is incredibly thought-provoking. This is one of those lines that I very often mentally refer back to. The narrator of the book is describing the four travelers' journey through the mountains north of the Great Desert, and Huynh, Erebus's horse, suggests that they should be moving faster than they are. She says that even though they're all very tired, if she and Bree had Tarkhan masters on their backs, forcing them to move faster by means of spurs and whips, the horses would somehow find the strength to move faster. And Huynh suggests that, really, she and Bree ought to be able to push themselves even harder than a Kalormian rider could push them, since they're now free and they're motivated by a love for Narnia and a fear for its safety. But Bree dismisses this idea somewhat rudely, insisting that they are doing all they reasonably can, and so they carry on at their unrushed pace. And the narrator makes this incredibly insightful comment, referring principally to Bree. He says, One of the worst results of being a slave and being forced to do things is that when there is no one to force you anymore, you find you have almost lost the power of forcing yourself. I'm going to repeat that. I think it's so important. One of the worst results of being a slave and being forced to do things is that when there is no one to force you anymore, you find you have almost lost the power of forcing yourself. This 
I think this is an important reality check. Obviously, it doesn't only refer to literal, physical slavery. Whenever we experience freedom from any kind of oppression or um, constraint, there's always the risk of sort of taking advantage of our new freedom and being lazy. This can happen in almost any context. The first practical example that comes to my mind is simply the transition from childhood to adulthood. There's that transition from being guided and restrained and told what to do and what not to do, and you come out of that into this new kind of life where you make your own decisions, and you're theoretically free to do whatever you want. Well, it's very easy, of course, to be irresponsible when you go through this transition, to be lazy. But the truth is, you're not experiencing the full potential of freedom when you combine freedom with irresponsibility. Because when you avoid responsibility, you inevitably will experience consequences and limitations on your life. But in contrast, when you are free and responsible, then the sky's the limit. Or in C.S. Lewis's terms, when you're free and have the power of forcing yourself, when you're not controlled by others, but you do have self-control, that's when you'll experience the full extent of freedom. So this is a crucial moment in the book, and I think the narrator's insight here is definitely one worth pondering as we consider our own lives and whether we really have learned the power of controlling ourselves and not letting ourselves be controlled by others or by our own instincts or emotions or weaknesses. Now, along with the theme of enslavement versus true freedom, another important line of thought that Lewis is exploring in The Horse and His Boy is humility versus pride. These are ideas that are explored in several ways through the different characters, so today I can only scratch the surface of what Lewis is communicating here. But I think what it inevitably boils down to for every character is that to come to a place of true humility, they have to understand themselves in relation to Aslan. They have to see themselves as part of something bigger than themselves. So Shasta struggles with the feeling of inferiority. He feels self-pity at times, and he feels like he doesn't belong anywhere. And the help that he needs, ultimately, is an encounter with Aslan, which shows him that he belongs in a story much bigger than he realizes. Perhaps my favorite moment in the whole novel is when Aslan, in essence, tells Shasta the story of Shasta's own life. But Aslan tells it by describing every time when Aslan was present in Shasta's life without Shasta's knowledge. I would so love to just read to you this moment from the book, but I, I'm afraid I can't without spoiling parts of the story. But what Aslan does is he goes through Shasta's past and key moments along his journey northward that we've read about, and Aslan says, I was there. I was here. This was me. 
And as he hears this, Shasta suddenly sees his whole life in a new light, realizing that Aslan has been guiding him the whole time, and realizing that he matters to Aslan. And so, even the unpleasant, seemingly unfair things about Shasta's past are redeemed by this new knowledge of where he belongs in the story Aslan is telling. It's a glorious moment, and all the inferiority and self-pity Shasta had been struggling with before, they don't even really make sense anymore, those feelings. Nothing else matters. After he encounters Aslan and is told the true story of his own life. And similar encounters happen for Shasta's three friends. Bree and Erebus, in particular, who have struggled with pride for nearly the whole book, come to a new understanding of themselves when they each meet Aslan. And there's a specific line that comes up a couple of times, spoken by Aslan, which I think of so often. Perhaps more often maybe even than any other quotation from the whole Chronicles of Narnia. I've been both encouraged and convicted by this line for years. Both Shasta and Erebus, when they individually encounter Aslan, ask about someone else in the midst of the conversation, and Aslan tells each of them, I am telling you your story. No one is told any story but their own. In essence, I think what Aslan is trying to teach them is not to compare themselves to others, not to focus on what other people think or experience, but to be content with their own story. Shasta needs not to think of himself as worthless, and also needs not to think of his life as unfair. Everyone else gets a better life than he has, he's, he's tempted to think. But Aslan says, no, keep your eyes on me. That's what matters most. And Erebus, on the other hand, is not tempted to think that she is worthless, but that everyone else is worthless, or at least is worth less than she is. And to her also, Aslan says, no, don't rank yourself. You're not superior to everyone. You too need to keep your eyes focused on me. Now, of course, Aslan does want Shasta and Erebus to think of others in the sense of treating others with compassion and respect and sacrificial love, but they are not to find their identity by comparing themselves to others. Identity is found in one's individual relationship to Aslan. No one is told any story but their own. Oh, I wish I could talk so much longer about this story, but I really have to wrap it up now. If you have thoughts about The Horse and His Boy, I would love to hear from you individually and continue this discussion with you. Feel free to message me on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're a patron, on Patreon. And I would so enjoy hearing your thoughts about this marvelous story. I cannot begin to communicate how much I love this book. But if you haven't read it, just take my word for it. You have got to read The Horse and His Boy. And of course, the whole series. There, There's just nothing else that I know of quite like The Chronicles of Narnia. 
So thank you for listening today, and I hope you've enjoyed this discussion. Be sure to tune in again next week for our penultimate episode of the season, in which I'll be talking about book six of the Chronicles, The Magician's Nephew, which technically is a prequel to the entire series. So it holds some surprises, as well as some answers to questions that the other books raise about Narnia's past. So I hope you'll join me for that episode. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywhamproductions.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.